Sport Calgary is the voice of over 275 sports organizations in the Calgary area. Share your voice and become a Sport Calgary member for free at sportcalgary.ca slash members. Hey, hey, hey. How you ho- How's everybody doing? How you holding up, kids? It's your old pal, uh, Rob Kerr. Um, glad you could make some time for us. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome if you're here for the first time. Uh, this is the original Six Feet Conversation podcast, uh, a little project we have undertaken here at Sport Calgary. Uh, we're all going through the pandemic and the self-isolation and the working from home. Um, we can all go a little stir-crazy. We want to do something positive for you. We want to do something uh, fun for you. We want to tell some stories, celebrate a little bit about the uh, sport culture in the city of Calgary and area, and highlight some people who have played a role in it and and make it up. And and we got a good one for you today. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Um, we need to talk a little more CFL football, and we're able to do that with a um, a transplanted New Jerseyite. Uh, yes, he came via North Carolina State um, to Calgary and stayed and stayed and stayed and stayed. Um, got here in the the uh, late seventies and has called Calgary home ever since and has been a huge part of the football community. Continues to be part. Now we had this conversation with Trent McClellan. Of course, you know I'm talking about Canadian football, right? You know, North American football, not 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 the beautiful game football. But the North American game, the CFL, that's what we're talking about today. Uh, full disclosure, he's a friend of mine, um, and he is a wonderful guy. The nice thing about doing this podcast from my vantage point is there doesn't need to be an agenda. Uh, this is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a news podcast. We're not trying to break any news. Um, all we're trying to do is introduce Canadian or Canadians, Calgarians to people who make up the community, people who are in the community. Uh, Sure, we talk about different topics, and sure, we've got our opinions, but they're just that, they're opinions. But uh, these are really a labor of love, i got to be honest with you. Um, People that I know can tell some stories and and can entertain. And and that's, again, a very selfish podcast for me to do um, because it's really the the one that I want to do. And I, I really, really, really am looking forward to you hearing from a guy, by the way, I'll point out, uh, in our podcast with Randy Chevrier, he plays a large role in that one too. Tom Higgins, everybody, uh, Grey Cup champion coach, two-time uh, CFL coach of the year, uh, director of officiating, former Stampeder player, um, now coaching in, in, of all places, the University of Alberta. Uh, he's back to his university roots there, um, but came via North Carolina State, as I mentioned before. Tom is a special guy. The reason this podcast is happening, he was going to be, he was on my list, um, but a week or so ago, I was just, you know, having one of those days, as I'm sure we all have had here in the last couple of weeks, where, yeah, I was feeling a little down, and all of a sudden my cell phone r- r- rang, and it was Tom Higgins. Just wanted to see how I was doing. Just wanted to reach out. And you're going to find out why. Uh, I had, I was just, here's a guy that I covered as the coach of the, uh, of the, the Stampeders in the, from a media standpoint. I got to know him. Uh, but it was a coach-media relationship. But he was, he was always so much nicer than that. And there's a lot, trust me, I got lots of good friends um, that are coaches and managers. And, and I don't really have a lot of bad things to say about the people that I covered um, there's a couple of hockey coaches I could do without. There's a one or two football coaches I could do without. But current guy, like I have 
freaking think the world of Craig uh, of um, Craig Conroy, uh, guys like Dave Dickinson, Brad True Living, um, you know, and, uh, Jeff Ward. I got to know a little bit. Um, you know, blessed. Like, there's lots of good good guys, but Tom Higgins is a, is a special cat. And and Randy Chevrier talked about that in his podcast. And I think today, I'm hoping today, you're going to see a little bit of what I'm talking about. Uh, reminder, not sure what sports are provided in Calgary? Sport Calgary Sports Directory is there to help you find a sport and a sport organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Let's spend a little time with a, a really cool, good dude. Good dude. Maybe that's the, way we, maybe that's the name of the podcast. Good dudes and dudettes. But this is a good dude. Tom Higgins, everybody. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic. I get to talk to you. Are you kidding me? My day is made. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm just, we're just going to have some fun and we're just going to talk and tell some stories and I'm rolling some tapes. So I'm just going to start right here. Tom, how Sounds are you making good. out in all of this? How are you holding up? Uh, uh, very well. I uh, have, you know, I, I hear some people say that they're bored. Um, my wife and I are, are not bored and we don't feel we have enough time in the day. Um, lots of things that you can do. And I hope that people at the end of all of this don't look back and say, I wish I would have done something a little different. Do it now. There's, there's a lot of time to do things. And so uh, we're reconnecting with a lot of old friends that we haven't had the opportunity to do because we were just so busy with life. So what? So reconnecting, what else are you doing? What's, what are the, the things? Are you binging any shows? Are you catching up on any reading? What are you doing? Reading is, is uh, uh, one of the good things. Um, uh, the, what it does not take a hit any longer is uh, lifting three times a day, cardio uh, three or four times, uh, I'm sorry, a week, uh, three or four times uh, a week with cardio, and then we get a couple of yoga sessions in there so that that doesn't get uh, taken care of. But uh, something that uh, we've all of a sudden started to like, and I think a lot of people around the globe are doing it, is uh, putting puzzles together. And so it's it's interesting because we we have some of these puzzles that uh, it, the pieces aren't square and there <laughs> takes some time to put in and but we have the time and so um, and doing a lot of uh, FaceTime uh, you know when you can't see someone uh, it, it's it, the next best thing instead of being on the phone is seeing them uh, personally and so I have the, also been blessed to uh, take a job with the University of Alberta Golden Bears as their defensive coordinator so I've been getting in touch with all of the defensive players and we're going to set up uh, some uh, video conferencing and we'll watch some football together and um, you know making sure that they get into a routine because they still have school to do and at the end of the day, thinking there's things still on my list that I didn't do that I have to push over to the next day, which is great. How about yourself? You know what? It Really, the day-to-day work is good, but it's these podcasts, these conversations with people, friends mostly, which has been awesome, all friends actually. And that's really what that drives me is, you know, I do not wish to diminish what's going on. Nobody does. It's very serious, and, and we all have to take the steps necessary to, 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 you know, to get out of this, you know, together. But the one thing I keep coming back to, and I hear it a little bit in you, is that we're slowing down and, and, and life's not so hectic, and we're getting back to some of the fundamentals, to use a football term. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, and I hope it sticks. Yeah. 
I agree. I really do agree. Um, you know, I really dislike when coaches refer to uh, games as a war. It's it's not a war, but what we are going through is life altering. It's life changing. It's this is like having a football team for the world. And guess what? We're one in seven. And if we don't do the things the right way, we're gonna we're gonna finish with one in sixteen, one in seventeen record, and we're gonna go down. Um, this is the first time that you know what we're all in this together. There's not a person that is listening that is not part of the solution, and being part of the solution is doing your part. And everybody, you know, and and some people aren't taking it seriously. That's that's some, some what's bothersome to me is this is serious. And ha- what what role do you have? To make sure it's not spread. You don't know if you're carrying it. And you definitely don't want it. Because we don't want anybody else being going to a hospital. And taking up valuable time that where somebody else could possibly be using it. Talk to me a little bit, Coach, about the role of sport at a time like this. We're all missing it, right? We'd all like to be able to watch our favorite teams and that. But it, it seems to me that, you know, right now, there's almost... Um, uh, a reset like we talked about that the where does sport fit where is it? it's that distraction at least the professional side of sport correct you know if we got rid of professional sport we'd miss it but it wouldn't be life and death if we got rid of amateur sport that would be life and death what sport teaches is life lessons more so than what uh, being an academic and just being in the classroom, being on the field or on the rink or being on the pitch, being on the diamond. Um, you're, you're taught lessons that are so sustainable, so relevant to what you will be doing for the rest of your life. Understanding the ability of wins and losses and discipline and teamwork and dedication, um, that would be a tragedy. Professionally, that's entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so entertainment is still very valuable. All forms of entertainment, whether it's in the arts and whether it's theater, whether it's in the on the field of athletics. Um, so we need to take a step back. And, and what's really important? I, I love that, you know, there's a lot of good things out there. And we got to look for those. Um, Robert Kraft, him sending his own private um Jet yeah. to pick up masks. That's something, you know, what needs to be done. You need to hear that. That Did Russia really actually send help to the United States? Unprecedented. Really? Yeah. We're all in this together. I think that's what it's what it's saying. And you know what? It, it's it's going to be just a short period of time. But we are going through history. We're going to be part of history. And so it's going to be fun how this story gets written. Coach, you and I share a, a, a common passion for leadership, especially through sports and especially through youth. I, I believe it's the most important gift that sport gives you. I, I've seen you. I've, I've witnessed you. I, I know you to be no better practitioner that I've ever come across in, in helping young people become better leaders. Uh, without Thank getting, you. Well, pre, no, it's it's true. And we've had this conversation. I don't want to get political but right now we're we're watching a world that we're separating the managers from leaders. And and maybe yes. that's one thing when we come out of this that youth sport can reset a little bit and maybe we don't have to worry about 
you know, getting to the top all the time. And maybe we don't have to worry about all the extras, but we can get back to the basics, which is what sport teaches us. Uh, I can't argue with that. I agree 100% because that's the purity of, of sport. And um, sometimes we get way too wrapped up in, you know, really what, what is important. Participation is important. Doing your best is important. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, and again, I've had the opportunity now to spend a little bit of time with uh, the, the football team. And I, I told them, we have an opportunity to win every game that we play. And they're looking and smiling and thinking. I said, here's, here's my way in which we do this. Every game that we go on out and play, if we have everyone dedicated to playing to the best of their ability, I don't care what the final score is, we won. And they looked at me strange, and I said, understand this. If you take on that philosophy, you'll have a chance to win a lot more than you lose on the scoreboard. But you're a winner. And that's, that's the essence of, of sport. That's the essence of amateur sport. And I, I, I love it to death. And believe it or not, even you know, being a professional coach, mm-hmm. I said the same thing. I said, you know what, please look me at the end of the game. I'll shake your hand. I want to look you in the eye and just tell me you did the best that you can. And then it's one of those life lessons, even on the professional level, because there's a lot of professionals that uh, understand, you know, what we're talking about. That, you know, no, it's not life and death. It's about doing the best that you can with what you have and not regretting it. I also have told them that, you know what, I, I never lose. I either win or I learn. And so that's where the lessons are in, in the fact that, you know what, if you get you lose, don't lose the lesson. And so I, I, it's a lot of it, to me. I am so thrilled to actually be back on the field. It's taken a while, um, you know, since I was fired from the Montreal Alouettes, I started a little um company the canadian football academy and i've been able to still stay involved in football but uh the head coach at the university of alberta is a former football player of mine chris morris and had a chance to coach him and we are very like-minded so we we will get along very very well i want to uh i want to stay in that vein uh one of the guests on this podcast is a guy you know very well and he is a really special guy and he points directly at you for being such an important influence in his life. Um, he had a long, long career in the CFL. Um, he's been a teacher, but maybe with the times we're in right now, more importantly, he's now become a, a, a firefighter here in Calgary. And he's you know on the front lines, and, and you know he's there for us. Um, yes. w- what does it mean when a Randy Chevrier points at you and says he's, he's the most important guy? It's it's heartwarming. It it really is that to know that you've made a difference, and I, I like to you know to all of the people who are helping us get through this. There's a lot of people that have to stay at home, and you can do your work at home, or you have to self isolate. But there are also people that are out there that are still doing their job, so that way we can stay at home. But to know that you, you, you made a difference in one life, knowing that then all of a sudden uh, your tree grows ever so farther. Because I, I hope then in the time that Randy has on this earth, he'll influence 
more people. And so a coach will influence more people in his career than anyone else can do in 10 lifetimes. And so that's, again, you know, the value of sport, but you can't have sport unless you have coaches. You can't have, uh, you know, sport unless you have people who are administrators. And and we'll get back to that. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it is about touching people. And one of the other things that Sharon and I, Sharon's my wife, we said that each day we're going to write down and we are going to make sure we connect with somebody that's on our phone that we not we haven't connected in a while. And I, I in, in that respect, um, I write the name down and then, you know what, it could be uh, we could be on for 10 minutes or we could be on for 45. It, it doesn't matter. It's to reconnect. And uh, one of my reconnection is a, a, a former football player. We played four years together at North Carolina State. He was a defensive tackle. I was a nose guard. And we just laugh. We just have so many uh, fond memories. And we say, hey, do you remember when this happened or this happened? And you're thinking, why? Why did, Why can we not stay in touch? Well, it's, it's because of busyness of life. And so, again, I, you know, I, I like the word that you use. We get a chance to reset. Yeah. But what I'm hoping, and, and hopefully by somebody listening and if we touch one person to say hey that's a pretty good idea well reach out you we have an opportunity go ahead and you know make sure you facetime somebody or even just phone there's a lot of people that do need to have the connection and you know one of the things i was able to do which was really nice is over the past weekend uh the defensive coaches from the university we got together on zoom and so we had a chance and it felt like we were all together although we weren't, but we were visually. And so it was so nice to get caught up that, you know, we had one that got laid off and then others working at home and we have somebody who's working on a PhD and still able to do so. Um, it was just fun to get caught up and then to put some plans going forward. We don't know when we'll be together, but we did decide that, you know what, in the month of April, maybe twice, we should have this uh opportunity to get back together and now we're going to actually do that with the the players we can video conference and if we video conference we can show some videos as well and talk about football but also talk about life and see how they're doing and making sure their families are are doing well a couple things that came out of that and i want to come back to them so i'm going to write them down and we will revisit them out of that answer but i want to stay with randy for a second because in that conversation he was very complimentary and, and did a great job of explaining your coaching style. And I want to ask you a little bit about it um, because it does in some cases butt up against the grain of the perception of what a professional foot co- football coach is. You do not belittle players. You do not go out of your way to you know make someone feel lesser about themselves. You're not necessarily a yeller and a screamer. Accountability, sure. And Randy talked about his football voyage, especially on the NFL side, of how many guys that, you know, you're in, you're out, you're useless to me unless you can do something. Coach, how did you come about your mannerisms and your and the way you approach coaching and the way you approach dealing with athletes? I'd like to think, you know, our life's experiences as we, as we go. Obviously, you know, uh, your first interaction is when you're much younger and i had a a mother and father and mom who stayed at home and a a dad who uh, went to university 
played professional football as well. He played for the Chicago Cardinals and the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> and um, and then he, he was a high school uh, football coach for the rest of his career. I mean, he was just a phys ed teacher. And, you know, I, I grew up in, in a football environment. And um, But my dad was a little bit different. Loving, but a little bit different. A little bit like Archie Bunker. And some of your listeners might sure. think, well, who's Archie? who's Archie Bunker? Well... Archie Bunker wouldn't survive today. Um, it, it also, it, some of the older coaches, Vince Lombardi, um, would not have survived today unless he understood and changed a little bit with the times. So I, I, I then, you know, th- that was an influence, but I, I was tremendously influenced in, in university. Uh, to have a coach that uh, eventually won a national championship, he, it, it it was Lou Holtz that I had for four years at North Carolina State. And the only reason some people would know is that when he finally made it to Notre Dame, and it was a long journey for him, um, he won a national championship. But he's been successful wherever he went. And you take something from, from everyone that you do. And uh, I did something that uh, was truly unique. I, I, I was a wrestler in university as well. And then the, the wrestling coach and the, and the sport of wrestling – teaches you humility because it's only a one-on-one one person's on the mat the other person because a lot of times you know in a sport and a team environment you can say well i played really well everybody else you know messed it up and it, it was just a, a again another little thing that ticked that all of a sudden made sense and i i had some experiences where you know coaches belittled and i'm thinking that's not right and that I, I, what kind of coach did I want to become? And, and a lot of times coaches be, uh, that become coaches learn their coaching from older coaches. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the same thing as in parenting. If we learn our parenting skills from our parents, then you know what? We'd still have capital punishment. You know, you'd still be spanked. You'd still be hit with a spoon. Yep. And times have changed. And so uh, I was very fortunate, to, I, I guess, to truly understand and appreciate and, um, you know, to have gone through all of these different experiences lent itself to the, the person that I am today. And uh, I do know that even on the professional level, these young men are still impressionable, you know, and, and that's where it doesn't work that way because it is a meat market. But I, I went through that as well. I, I played professional football. And I was cut six times as a professional football player. And each one of those times has a story to it. And I can tell you, six times that I was cut, I was cut incorrectly or poorly as far as I was ever concerned on how it should be done and done properly. And so, and again, I've cut many of players now, but I, I, was, I was the person who was responsible but, the, you know, the whole organization makes the decision because I've had players come on up to me and said, do you remember me? And probably yes. And you know, might have to ask the name, but that's OK. And afterwards, you know exactly where he was. Well, you you cut me. And, and you're going, OK, if I did, I did it in a professional manner. And so uh, it was one of those things that was critical to me because, again, that's someone's child. Yep. 
And I don't care if they're 30 years old or 35 years old. They're going to be treated with dignity and respect. They're going to be treated just the way I want to be treated. And that's one of the, to me, is the golden rules. And there's really only three rules. And I, I, I said them to the, the defensive players at the University of Alberta is you do what's right. If, if you do what's right, you can be trusted. If everything you do, you do it to the best of your ability. That means then you're committed to excellence. And the third rule is uh, treat people the way you want to be treated. And if, if you do that, that means you care. And if you find an individual that you can trust, that's committed to excellence, that cares, you have a successful person. If you have an organization that has those three characteristics, you have a successful organization. And so that's there's still life lessons. You know what? We're going to go out. We're going to compete. But, you know, if if it, at the time comes that you have to let an athlete go, you can do it the right way. I would usually tap them and say, look, I need to see you after you've had a shower. And we sit down and talk. And, uh, you know, if you were with me, that means, you know what? We thought you were good enough to be a professional athlete. Just because we're making a decision right now that you're, we can't have you on our football team doesn't mean that you can't be a professional athlete and that we only wish you the best, but don't not do it the right way. I, one time I, you know, I was with an organization and all of my stuff was in a black garbage bag with my name tag on top of it inside the front door when we came in and you're going, no, that's the wrong way to do it. And when you have somebody else tell the uh, athlete, you know, the head coach wants to see you, well, that's the person who has told you, you know what, you're probably cut or you're not going to be with the organization. So um, I, I long answer, the best that I can answer it, um, that's what my DNA is. I, I, I do care about the athletes. I hope that they, when they leave that they're better people than when they first came. Obviously, I hope they're better athletes or better football players or better hockey players, whatever the case may be. But there's something more. And, and so that's that's how you, you, you build a great organization. You have to build a culture. And so to me, that's how the culture culture is built. And the moment that you build a culture, then it sustains itself. Because you, anybody you bring in, you need people that are like-minded that can help reinforce exactly what you're doing. Because if Randy all of a sudden heard somebody putting somebody down, I can guarantee you as a player in the locker room, Randy would have stood up for that player and said, no, that's not how we treat people. And it's contagious. And, and that's, to me, what makes it a lot of fun being in, involved and being in that situation. Right there, you gave me an answer, which is the whole idea behind why I wanted to do these podcasts because I wanted to share some of the intellect and the um, experience that's in Calgary. Coach, I think you would agree. You're a speaker. You hold coaching conferences. You presented at coaching conferences. You know that there's a little bit of a, I don't know, perhaps a, a, an issue. Sometimes we worry about too much about X's and O's and, and plays and we don't deal. That whole bit that you just talked about, about how you would cut a player, I think is so valuable. For many volunteer coaches, it doesn't matter the sport. They get in there. They just want the best, but that's part that comes with it, right? Um, I, I just I, That was fantastic. Um, let me 
push you one on one thing, and I'd, I'd like to know, did you feel, because I'm, I'm an outsider when it comes to the world of professional football. I see it from the outside. I interview, I see it from the outside. Were, was your style of coaching um, compatible with, with most other people in football, or did you find that sometimes you butted up against, you know, quote-unquote hard-nosed people or old-school people? It, it's uh, yes it, it was not it, it's not the norm um the, some people have the, the same type of characteristics and i i believe you need to but um it I, i'm a little bit of an outsider when it comes to that and in, in the in the in my thought process uh and others have been very successful as well doing it different ways and um when you, you do get into coaching the the most important thing that you could Tell a, a, a young man or a, a young lady that's getting into it, be yourself, but you can always learn and that there's always a, a, a different way in which to do it. And so uh, I, I like to think that, you know, when you are coaching, you're coaching a group of athletes. And what's really to me, uh, I, what I love is the university athletes. And I told them, I'm humble to be in front of you. Because I am talking to doctors and lawyers and businessmen and firefighters and police officers. You are going to be going on to do something else. And, but what you're doing is you're taking yourself with you. And hopefully you'll take a little bit of, of me with you when you do leave. And, uh, but to answer the question, I'd like to think, and well, I, I know that I'm a, a little bit of, a, of an outcast on sometimes how I think, and they'll say, oh, you're too soft, you're too this. You know, it takes too long to do it that way. Um, it, it never takes too long to do something the right way. Uh, and if it takes longer, but it's the right thing to do, then then do it, because that's one of the three rules that I live by. And, you know, ask other people who are with me, to live by the same rule. If I have it correctly, I believe you started coaching in 1983, correct? That's correct. How has the athlete changed? You know, here we are talking about you as a coach, but how how have you had to adapt? How have the young men that, that you've been in, put in charge of, how have they changed over the last three or four decades? Um, better, stronger, faster, uh, more worldly. Uh, technology has put that at their fingertips. Um, I, I still think that there's a core group that are uh, gutsy, that are tough. You know, you, you hear the old football players or hockey players, uh, that's we were tough back then. Uh, yeah, we were tough, but you know what? We weren't as talented. Uh, it, you, it comes and it, it keeps getting better, and it, it's, it's still a compliment to the people who have helped that happen and so some of the hockey players who have become hockey coaches have helped pu push the the envelope and you know they're they come up they're fed better they they're conditioned better uh they understand you know the value of being in the weight room and what that can do for you uh but they're also uh the millennials are also nose in a they don't communicate as well. Mm. Um, and, and the reason being, maybe they communicate in their own way, but it, it's in talking. Um, so, you know, you go on out to a restaurant, which a lot of people haven't done in the last little while, which <laughs> is good. Um, but 
two, we, my wife and I were out, um, uh, we were in Montreal and we went out and we had, we were having dinner and, uh, this couple were sitting and uh, it was a younger couple, looked like they were a married couple. Uh, both of them were on their cell phone and you're just thinking how sad that is. Why would you be coming out and be on your cell phone? Leave the cell phone at home or, you know, put them away. I, I think we, we're going to create a whole new culture that, um, you know, when somebody comes into the house, all cell phones have to go into this basket. So that way no one's distracted by having all this technology uh, in your hand. You don't have to have all the answers. Um, we, we were watching the Super Bowl and we, we had a question that came on up and uh, our, our, our children and their significant others were with them. And all of a sudden we had the answer within 15 seconds because somebody Googled it or somebody got on their computer or on their, on their phone and said, did we really need to have the answer? Um, but uh, the, the athlete more talented, the athlete uh, better trained. Uh, the athlete, and, and that's the way you want it. Uh, you know, you always want what's best for your 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 children, but you also want what's best for your athletes. And so, I mean, I don't know where the, the limit is. Uh, you know, they, years ago, they never thought that, that you could ever break the four-minute mile. And now there's high school athletes that are breaking the four-minute mile. We, in our lives, are probably going to experience – the breaking of the next barrier, which is a marathon, is going to be done in two hours. And, you know, it is mind-boggling. Where, what's the limit? Is there a limit? Uh, and that's the, the only limit is what somebody puts in their own mind. If they think it can be done, it can be accomplished. And so uh, it, it's fascinating because, to me, I'm watching this, what we're doing, in that we're in a pandemic, and – we're competing, but we're competing and helping one another all around the world because of technology. And so, I mean, I don't want to get off and I'll, I'll can come back to the original question, but I love that the teamwork that's being involved. Mm -hmm. Can we develop a vaccine? And if somebody all of a sudden gets an aha moment, they're going to share it with the rest of the world because somebody might add an aha moment on top of it somewhere else on the other side of the world and we can come up with a solution. And so that's what technology has allowed us to do. And I think technology has also, uh, you know, allowed us to do some things, um, you know, sport-wise that we couldn't otherwise do. But we also have to be careful because I don't know that sport was ever meant to be perfect. And so with a lot of these, you know, replays that are coming to be, uh, all of a sudden, uh, it, it, it's, it wasn't ever meant to be perfect. There are mistakes that are going to be made. So we just need to lighten up and uh, allow the flow of the game to con continue to occur, and then we'll go from there. But um, hopefully it, it was a significant enough answer to your question. Are, are you, you mentioned before, you were a university or a college level football player and a wrestler. Are you concerned about early specialization in young athletes? Yes, very much so. Um, the best thing that we can do, and some of the greatest examples that we have, uh, even in the NFL now, all of a sudden we got a quarterback that throws blind. You know, he's not looking at where he's throwing. Well, that's because he was a three-sport athlete. Yeah. 
He played basketball and he played baseball. So he throws underhand. He throws sidearm. Where did that all come from? That came from uh, his uh, baseball and his basketball playing. In basketball, they don't look where they're going to pass the ball. And so, I mean, it's fascinating. And that's Mahomes, the yep. Kansas City yep. Chief quarterback. And so, um, no, multifaceted. And, again, I I even like that in, in in university athletes we have a couple of athletes that you know ran track and it's it's tough i you know what it's so demanding a university level i uh by what i did um well i i ended up i did football and i i did wrestling and then i did school and that's it Uh, there wasn't a time for anything else and i mean i was very fortunate loved it um it was a a great opportunity great experience because i i love the sport of wrestling as well um yeah why i did it to this day i still am shocked but um maybe because i didn't finish my career yet when i was a high school wrestler i lost one wrestling match in my senior year and it was a uh, an overtime match we were tied in overtime and they picked him as the winner it was a split decision there's two side judges and then the uh, the official on the mat and so it was a split decision, but but he went and won. Now, was that really the reason? I I, I can't tell you. But um, wrestling has helped me for football tremendously. But in high school, I was uh, I did football, I did wrestling, and I did track and field. I was a shot put and discus thrower. And uh, to be a multi-sport athlete is very very conducive to helping you. Um, be be good at a singular sport. So I, I I would definitely recommend any parent, please 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 you know don't isolate. Give them give them an opportunity to try different sports. It it can be very beneficial. In conversation with Tom Higgins, and this is this is kind of appropriate. Not sure what sports are provided in Calgary. Sport Calgary Sports Directory will help you find the sport and sport organization that's right for you. Visit sportcalgary.ca to learn more. Coach, let's tell some stories. Um. Tell me about how you how you found football. How did, was was your football journey easy in the beginning? Your father had played, um, but was yes. it easy for you to get to college? Um, I'm not sure. It, it, it's it, to to start playing. Um, I remember asking my dad, and he said no at first, and and I'm thinking, no, really. Um, so what it was in the United States is a Pop Warner football. And so, I mean, I was just persistent enough, and I guess that's what he was looking for, that it was going to be my decision. I wanted to play. And so I played Pop Warner football, and uh, that was my start. So I played Pop Warner football for three years at a pretty high level. In, in the state of New Jersey, we actually flew down to Sarasota, Florida, and played in the Circus Bowl. We went to whole Massachusetts and played, but we played a whole bunch of organized games, and it was it was some pretty darn good football with some really good coaching. And then one year at junior high, and then three years at a, at a senior high school, and I I just continued to play and enjoy it. Um, and I played all three sports, and I obviously I was a captain of the football team, was captain of wrestling, captain of track and field, but I was very good at all three sports. And uh, there was it's, it's fascinating because I didn't really have to do anything. I didn't have to make any videos at this time. There really weren't videos. What we watched is 16 millimeter, uh, 
game tape. Yeah. And, you know, it, you had to wait a couple of days before it came, and then you get a chance to watch it. And um, But I uh, had quite a few scouts that came and took a look and watched me. They, they would watch the, the game footage because they're at university they are, at that time, uh, playing. And so after the season's over, the, all the coaches go on out. And one of the things that actually helped me believe it or not, to go to North Carolina State was they watched me wrestle. Hmm. And they saw an athlete. And they saw a tough athlete. And they go, wow, okay. You know, that's something that you don't get a chance to see when, you, when you're watching football because you're so far removed from it. And so I, I only found that out later that that's what one of the uh, coaches said, that they loved the fact that I wrestled and that I was so tough that that's why I was given a scholarship. And I, was, I had the opportunity to pick a couple of different universities, and uh, I chose North Carolina State uh, because that was Lou Holtz's first year. And you sit down and talk to Lou Holtz, um, all of a sudden you, you feel like, you know what, I want to be part of this organization. He made me feel so good that, uh, you know, I could run through that wall, and I would run through that wall for him. And so I knew something special was going to happen. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, we were very successful there. We had four bowl games in four years. And um, I was an All-American player in, at university, both football and wrestling. But um, in high school, I didn't have to produce any 16-millimeter film and send it on out, which is usually done now. Um, but I, it, it took care of itself. And what was really fascinating was the fact that um, – a full scholarship means you you get room book board tuition um you have you eat on the training table you you have no decisions that you have to make some people are there to help you what courses to take uh they give you all the books that you need from your course i just went to the bookstore and it got filled out i never had to pay any money and we even got paid uh 15 a month for laundry now, to tell you how long ago that was, <laughs> it was 25 cents to wash and 10 cents to dry. And we had a dryer. If you hit it in the right spot, you didn't even have to pay the 10 cents. So, you know, I mean, that's a long time ago. But um, that's that was my journey on how I got to university. And then, uh, you know, my, my goal was I, I wanted to play professionally for 10 years. And um, I was a defense alignment in university. And I knew I had to become a linebacker. And um, I had a couple of opportunities, but uh, I know I answered the question on how I got to university. And so um, it was just, you know what? Wrestling actually opened the door. Uh, they might have still looked at the film and said, okay, yeah, he's a pretty good football player. But they, to be able to see up close and personal, uh, I know wrestling was uh, the, the reason that uh, you know, North Carolina State got excited because they saw me wrestle. Talk about your professional career because it started here in Calgary as a member <laughs> of the Stampeders. What, what was it like coming north of the border and, and adapting to the Canadian game for you? Oh, that was uh, truly unique. Uh, so when uh, it was the coach, the defensive coordinator for the Calgary Stampeders came down and, and watched the video uh, of myself. And um, after four years, uh, Lou Holtz had a chance. He went to the New York Jets. And uh, I was an All-American nose tackle 
but I, I was six foot two, two hundred and thirty five pounds, uh, not not big enough to, to probably play defensive line. But again, I'll, uh, you come back, and if you ask me about size, then I, there's a whole other qu- uh, answer that's there. Um, <laughs> what what um, I, I had a chance to go to a couple of different places, and um, as far as I, I didn't get drafted. But uh, I had some free agent opportunities. Um, but the Calgary Stampeders offered me a contract that, um, you know, it looked like they wanted me. Where going as a free agent to uh, the NFL would have been very difficult uh, to possibly make. So I, I signed the contract. And believe it or not, I got a $2,000 signing bonus. <laughs> and what was really neat, because it's been that long ago, I can tell you exactly the year that the Canadian and the American dollar became even. So in 1976, the um, Canadian dollar was worth a dollar five. So I cashed in my check, and I got all this money back, too. And I'm thinking... It was only for $2,000. And they go, yeah, but the exchange rate. So I learned about the exchange rate right away and thinking, this is pretty darn good. <laughs> so so, so, I, so I came up to Calgary and I, I made it, um, had a, a really good year. Um, my first game that I played, uh, it was a true, I was the middle linebacker. And it was a true four four defensive linemen, three linebackers. So I was a true middle linebacker. And I remember my first game, I can tell you that I had 11 tackles. And I'm telling you this because it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with the gentleman who was in front of me, John Helton. <laughs> he, was, he was a monster. You know, I mean, all I was doing is just running to wherever the ball carrier was and tackling him. Because none of the offensive linemen could get out because they had to worry about John. And so I had, I had a great year. I had a fun year. I was uh, nominated a, a rookie of the year for the Calgary Stampeders. And then uh, the coaching staff changed uh, the next year. I came back. Jack Goda became the head coach. And I was let go. And I knew that uh, – I found out years later that it was uh, – money was the sure. ultimate – reason that i was let go uh the person that he kept was making uh sixteen thousand dollars less than myself and that's okay that's just the way it goes and so my journey then left i i was uh, couldn't get caught on anywhere that year i came back the next year uh so i went and worked on a master's at university of virginia uh i was able to the next year um work get a tryout with the new york giants and so I was now, um, Harry Carson was a middle linebacker, and I was set to be his backup. Uh, but the fourth preseason game, I got a hit pointer. And uh, I got paid for a while, and then when I finally got healthy, uh, I was cut. And so now I'm on my journey of uh, being a journeyman. Uh, the Next year, I was with the Cleveland Browns. Uh, the Cleveland Browns. I uh, had a good crop of linebackers. Uh, we had a rookie scrimmage against the Buffalo Bills. So from where Cleveland is in Buffalo, we both drove halfway, and then we we had a, a scrimmage against one another. Well, uh, Cleveland knew that they weren't going to keep me, so they cut me. But 
uh, Buffalo knew that I was going to get cut because they talked to the other coaches. And so I got picked up with Buffalo and then I played for Buffalo for a year. And I went back the next year. They had a couple other people that came on in and now I'm back on the street and cut. Uh, so I'm now married at this time and driving back to, to Calgary, I stopped and, uh, Saskatchewan was the, the assistant GM in from Calgary was now the GM for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and, uh, stopped and ended up playing the second half of the football season for Ronnie Lancaster and, uh, which was really nice. But now Ronnie Lancaster decided that his career was over and because he didn't really have a great career, um, coaching <laughs> career yeah. in Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, Gelly took over, new coach. Tom got cut. This is my sixth time as now as a professional player being cut. And as we talked, neither, not one of the six was done professionally. Um, I decided that, okay, I'm going to hang it up. Didn't get my 10 years in, but... You know, I got three or four years, and that that was okay. Came back and started teaching. Uh, then went to the University of Calgary. We won a Vanier Cup, and then started coaching with the Stampeders. So that was that was my my football. And so you know, six times, and I I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. And so you know, it, it's too long right now that we're we're talking. But I, I want you to know that then. Uh, there was three other times where I was cut now as a coach, which is an occupational hazard. You know, sure. when you become a professional coach and you are the head man, you're putting your neck out there. And so uh, I was then, you know, cut three times. And then I, when Montreal came to be and I went out to coach in Montreal and when I was finally cut and I was I was fired. Um, and then again, that's another story for another time, maybe. Um, I was pretty proud of myself because that made number 10. So when the Montreal happened and I said, you know what, very few people could ever say that they've been fired or cut 10 times on the professional level. I had the opportunity to say I did it. I made double digits. <laughs> and so, I mean, you get to know my personality a little yeah. bit. It, 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 nothing to be ashamed of. That's no. just the reality of it. You know what? Uh, if lessons are learned in defeat, then you know what? I, I got a great uh, education, and and I have, and so that that's part of you know, it, that's part of the makeup of how you, you you become who you are is through your experiences. The incredible part of of your story, Tom, for me was, and I didn't realize this, was you came to Calgary as a player, and then you left. You went out to different organizations in the NFL, played for a couple of years. But Calgary, that quickly became home base for you? Yes, yeah, and, and it's real simple. I, I met my wife at Kananaskis Hall. Um, she was working behind the desk. She, she got her uh, teaching degree from the University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. And um, she worked behind the desk because in Kananaskis Hall, that's where the athletes were put up during training camp. And so I actually had the opportunity to... to meet her and you know i enjoyed the company of all the 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 ladies but uh there was a little bit of a connection there and um it it was the calgary edmonton classic that was coming up and i had two tickets and i didn't have any family here so i I called sharon and i said 
you know, would you like to have these two tickets? And she goes, I would love to, but I'm going camping down in Montana. And so, I mean, I didn't, I didn't give up. I just said, what well, would your, your parents like to have them? And she said, oh, they would love to have them. So I found out her where she lived, and I dropped the tickets off. I put them in the mailbox uh, in the front. And so this Labor Day was a terrible day because it was just nasty, raining, cold. And so, I mean, after the game was over, whether we won or lost, I, I don't know, don't remember. Um, but I called her, and I said, did your parents go to the game? Did they enjoy the game? And they go, whoa, okay. She said, no, they didn't. Where did you leave the tickets? I said, in the front door, in the mailbox. She said, hold on a second. So she went, opened the front door, and got the tickets out of the mailbox. <laughs> and she was so embarrassed, uh, I got a, an invitation to come on over and have dinner. Uh, because she, they felt so bad that I gave them tickets. They used the back door. <laughs> they, they they come in and out of the back door. Okay. The parking was in the back, so sure. and that's why they didn't know that the, the, that's some miscommunications. And so uh, I had a dinner, and that's how it all started. So uh, by the time I got to Buffalo, uh, we stayed connected, uh, obviously, Sharon and I, the hard way, with letters and phone calls. Yeah. The phone calls were on Sunday. The letters were sent. And um, so we. Uh, that was. that's why Calgary then became home, because we got married, and we had all of our wedding things in Calgary. And so now we're in Buffalo, we're in Saskatchewan, and then by the time I got you know, let go in Saskatchewan, we're going, okay, that's it. So we really didn't determine where we were going to be, but since everything was in Calgary, um, we both applied in New Jersey and we also applied in Calgary. And my, my Sharon was a teacher before, uh, she got married. Uh, but I actually got a, um, I got a job before she did. And so, I was one of the very first teachers at Jack James vo uh, Vocational High School. Really? And yes, in Forest Lawn. Huh. And John Schellenberg was the principal and did a miraculous job with that school. And so I was there when I, I remember meeting John for the very first time. And I said, you know what? Um, my school day doesn't start until school's over. And he looked at me, but he understood. I said, do we have a football team? And he goes, no. And but he found me a football team to coach. I coached at Crescent Heights High School for a year wow. before I before I started to coach at the uh, with the Dinos. Wow! And so uh, and then I started the wrestling program at uh, at Jack James, and then went on to university. So that's how the connection with Calgary. And then uh, all three of our kids were were born here, and I mean we spent eleven seasons in Edmonton. But yeah. uh, again, they, they, the kids came back and they decided, you know, Calgary's home. So it was easy decision for Sharon and I to, to say Calgary is home. Now, one thing that I am very proud of, I'm uh, an American by birth, a Canadian by choice. And uh, absolutely zero regrets. Our kids got one heck of a great education, both public and university here in Canada. And I... I you know, I, I look down what's happening in the United States, and some, in some instances, I'm I'm embarrassed. Um, in others, um, I'll still always be proud. Sure. But I, you know, I can say proud that you know what, 
by being a dual citizen, I can be proud of both countries. Let's let's tell a couple of CFL stories. One, it'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about 92 in the Grey Cup here in, in, in Calgary. You were on that staff, uh, um, and that was Doug Flutie's team. What what yes? What what was so amazing about that group? What was so amazing about that run? Well, um, it, it's interesting because in, in 1991 we played in the Grey Cup. Um, you know, we uh, played against the Toronto Argonauts in Winnipeg. Uh, Danny Barrett was our quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny is more of a drop back quarterback. He he was not, nothing like Doug Flutie. I mean, his first pass that he threw uh, in the Grey Cup. Uh, went for a touchdown. It was just a shame that he threw it to the Toronto Argonauts. Um, and, you know, they, they had those million-dollar players there. Yep. Uh, John Candy and, and Wayne Gretzky was the uh, right. uh, the owners in, in 91. So there was a nucleus of a good football team in place. Larry Rickman now is the owner of the Calgary Stampeders, and they're having some financial challenges with paying Doug Flutie. Uh, out in bc so we took on the contract the average salary at this time in 1992 is around forty thousand dollars and doug flutie is making a million dollars um doug earned every penny of it um doug was dynamic he made our offensive line even better than they were in 91 because you have to rush doug flutie a lot differently he is a very special player. So Dave Sapunges, Doug Flutie, you know, Bruce Covington, there's a bunch of great guys. Um, coaching the defensive line, something I was very proud of, that we had something that will never happen again in Canada, is that we had four Canadian defense alignment. We started three. Mm-hmm. The Canadian defense alignment were Harold Hasselback, Shrekel Zizakovic, Kent Warnock, and Stu Laird. And those four guys could possibly have started, yep. and but we only started three of them. Will Johnson was the token American, and I, I'm saying that jokingly because <laughs> if he were listening, I, I, he, he has a good sense of humor. He's sure. a police officer now, probably getting ready to retire uh, in, in the city. Um, but we had a good defense. We had a, a good offense, good special teams. Uh, you know, we had return guys, Ronnie Hopkins, uh, Richie Hall. Um, Ronnie Hopkins, one of the best kickoff return guys that you could ask for. Um, so we weren't to be denied. In, so 92, we go and play in the Toronto. Um, it's in Toronto. And we're playing the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and it's not even a contest. Now, here's the heartbreak. The 1993 team was better really than 92. Yes. Um, we, we played in the, the 93 game was played. The great cup was played in Calgary in the Western final. We are playing the Edmonton Eskimos and it's like minus 40. It's Doug Flutie's hands are frozen. He has small little hands and, um, they, it was just one of those days that, you know what? They were the better team. They won. The next weekend, they played Winnipeg, and there was a Chinook. And Winnipeg went on to win. And so, you know, you remember those things. You're just thinking, wow, really? And so it it took a while before I had the opportunity to get back to a great cup. But uh, uh, then I left. And when I left, um, they were handing the rings out. So 1994, so it's a training camp. 
uh, all the Great Cup rings got handed out in Edmonton. And now I'm the assistant GM helping them hand out their rings that they beat the Stampeders mm. and then beat Winnipeg. But that's that's the way it works. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I went to Edmonton for one reason. I really wanted to know what the evil empire was about. <laughs> E.E. Uh, and, and, yeah. and because they were, they, I think it was like 46 years in a row or 36 years in a row they'd been in the playoffs. Yeah. That was a professional record. Um, and I knew I never wanted to be there when they didn't make the playoffs. Um, but I went on up and then I became, you know, assistant GM, became the GM, then became the head coach and GM. And um, that's the moment that I knew my uh, longevity with the Eskimos might be coming to an end. The moment that you put your neck out there and become the head coach, they can change because you know what they they don't like your smile anymore. But yeah, it's uh, thank you for asking about '92. It was nice oh. to be remembered, and we actually had the 25 year anniversary, which was fun to actually be back with all of those guys and reminisce. Yeah, I, the guys don't change much. They, you know what? They all have their own little stories that they remember, and it's nice to be reminded of those stories. Yeah, and it was I was lucky enough to be able to come down and, and do some interviews around that, Tom. And and one thing, and I don't care what the sport is, I don't care who the people are, I think the one thing that is never understood from the outside about a championship is it's never hoisting the trophy, it's the journey. It's always yes. the journey. You come back, and you, nobody ever comes back and says, wasn't it fun to win at the end of that game? It's always about the the road signs along the way. And and that's a really valuable lesson, and I'm glad that you mentioned it because um, the, it's what it, everyone gets the opportunity to go on the journey, and and hopefully the coaches that are listening take this to heart because it's not about the destination. If it's only about the destination, then you know in the CFL, you know only eight teams or nine teams are going to be happy. Hopefully, eventually ten teams. Uh, there's only going to be one team that is going to be happy because it ends with the the, the Great Cup. But if you if it's about the destination, you can win the Great Cup, and you're going to go. Is that all there is? It's about the journey. I had the opportunity to go to two Great Cups in a row, 2002 and then 2003. And um, the, the the journey in 2003, where when we won the Great Cup with Edmonton, um, there's so many stories that were involved in the whole journey of it all. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of them is that we we experienced the blackout in Toronto, and at this time we didn't know if it was. Uh, you know, an invasion or what happened. Right. Uh, we were supposed to play on Thursday. We we had to be there and play on Sunday. And we all of a sudden experienced what it's like not to have electricity and running water. Um, you know, we're in a hotel. We have no money. But it didn't matter because there wasn't anything you could buy because there's no electricity and no stores were operating. It You know, so it, 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 it is about the journey. And thanks for reminding us. I do want to ask you... Um, and, and I don't know if you view it the same way, but as somebody who was chronicling Calgary sport for the last two decades, um, your arrival in town to coach the Stampeders came at a time when it was, to me, so desperately needed. Stability was desperately needed. Um, that The organization had become a joke. Uh, and I, I use that word with no problem because it had. Um, but you came in and, and Henry Burris came in and... I think you guys did such an amazing job of bringing credibility and stability back to the CFL in Calgary. Well, well, well thank you. Uh, yes. And uh, having that opportunity, uh, 
you know, whatever happened in Edmonton, um, you know, I, I had uh, the GM and head coaching job for the last the four years, the last four years of the 11 seasons that I was there. You know, we finished in first three times and second once two great cup appearances and won a great cup, you know, was coach of the year and was fired. Yep. And uh, yeah, again, it, it, you, you have no control over that, but then had the opportunity to come here and, you know, was able to um, put some of the pieces together that were really very, very important. And one of them obviously is to have a, a quarterback, you know, you need to have the coaches and we were able to put the coaching and coaches in place, which was really in fine, you know, Ted Hellard and, um, John Frizzani, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're, we're now purchasing it and the flames were now part of it. And, um, this was, uh, you know, it, it still had another shift to go to what it was today, but we had a three year run where, you know what, we were in the playoffs, we were competitive. And, um, I thought we put the, the foundation of an organization and, um, you know, one of the things that I'm very proud of is the year after I left Edmonton, they won a great cup. Uh, so I was here as a GM and head coach, and uh, three years we were in the playoffs, and then John uh, Huffnagel takes over, and uh, they won a great cup. And by this time, I'm now director of officiating with the CFL, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that because really I, I, what it t- says to me is that the shells were still full. You know, yep. it, you didn't have to start from zero. You, you, you we, where we started, and you know, John has done a, a fantastic job of keeping that going because he's built a culture, and you know what, he's he's created continuity, and he's he's done the right thing because he's always continued to always have a quarterback and develop a quarterback, and that that's that's critical for any success. Um, speaking of which, and I do want to ask you about the officiating, but let me just quickly ask you about quarterbacks. I mentioned Doug Flutie. Um, Henry Burris was a known commodity and really, I guess, was connected back to the, the, that factory that was here in Calgary in the 90s. The one, and I know it's not a Calgary story, but it's, I think, is a, is a, a really heartwarming story. You had Ricky Ray, right, as a rookie in Edmonton? Yes, absolutely. He was one of the last people that we actually invited to uh, training camp. Um, Rick Warman was a quarterback that played, a backup quarterback that played for the Calgary Stampeders when I was there in Calgary. And he was down in the States in California, and he gave me a call. He says, there's this uh, kid here that, you know what, um, he just needs an opportunity. He, he probably could be a, a good one, uh, you know, if he's in the right spot. And uh, that's the Frito-Lay chip driver. He, <laughs> I guess, delivered Frito-Lays. But, um, so that was Ricky Ray. He, he came on up, and uh, I was criticized because at this time now I'm, I'm, I'm working with two quarterbacks. I have Jason Moss and Ricky Ray. Right. And now when you have two quarterbacks and you don't have one that is the number one guy, going with the two quarterback system is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, because it was it's very successful with the Edmonton system because you had Warren Moon and you had um, you also had Tracy Ham you've had yeah. uh, Damon Allen you had Matt Dunnigan they all were at one time because uh, Tom Wilkinson right. and 
uh, Warren Moon started to split time until all of a sudden Warren took on over and then Tommy's out of there. You know, the same thing with all those other guys. Yep. Um, so uh, until we had one that developed, but it didn't take very long to know that Ricky Ray was going to be the guy. Uh, not a real strong arm, but he he's one of those fearless leaders. He has that leadership quality about him. Um, he also could probably throw the best corner route that ever has been because he could drop it uh, and put it right in anyone's hands that was running a, a corner route. And uh, so success then followed and the continued success with the Edmonton organization was the fact that we were able to develop Ricky Ray. And, you know, he became, you know, exactly what we wanted him to be. But you never know when you first start because you take a look at him and you just go, hmm, and not very impressive looking. Right. But so is that guy that used to play for the, uh, the Patriots who was drafted in the sixth round in the hundred and. 44th or 166th pick. Uh, he takes his shirt off, you know. Uh, you're not going to be overly impressed, but Tom Brady became, uh, you know, the GOAT. And it'll be fun to see what he does in Tampa Bay, but that's the same thing with Ricky. You know, given an opportunity, then all of a sudden we had ourselves a, a legitimate quarterback that we knew that, that uh, it would have been nice to have been around him a little bit longer, but that's okay. Um, uh, I'm Please, I have been a small part in uh, bringing him to Edmonton and bringing him into the CFL. And that, and to me, the, the reason to tell that story is more of the CFL component to it because it's it's an it's similar. St- I mean, when Bo Levi came here, he was the number three, and nobody, you know, who knew, right? Um, and and I think, if I remember, if I'm historically correct, the flip side of that is you you brought it in or the, the organization. I guess it was Jim Barker brought in Achilles Smith, right? So. Here's, yes. a, here's yeah. a guy that had been scouted in college and all of this, and he came in, and yet, you know, the CFL has always been the proving ground or always been the ground for that quarterback that didn't have the hype that was just given opportunity. That's correct. You know, the, the, the fascinating thing was that so Doug Flutie came to Canada, and for six years he rewrote the record book. Mm-hmm. And so now he's going to go back into the NFL. And so I had a number of people were saying, can Doug Flutie succeed in the CFL? And that's a real simple, simple answer. Yes and no. And, and you're going, okay, now you're going to have to explain that, Tom. What do you mean yes and no? Uh, no, if somebody puts him in a system that makes him a drop-back quarterback and he has to throw from the pocket. Can't do it. Yes, if you allow Doug Flutie to do what Doug Flutie does. He he turned it upside down. He was a NFL comeback player of the year. I think he was Pro Bowl player yep. uh, when he, he went back um, because they allowed him to be who he, who he was. He was destined to fail in a system that didn't work for him. Right. And so, again, a, a very valuable lesson, uh, you know, to, to be learned um, in that situation that uh, – Kansas City Chiefs yep. have an, an athletic quarterback. Yep. All of a sudden, when you have an athletic quarterback, um, the old school way of which to defend somebody is out the window. Now, when you have to have somebody to spy, that doesn't that means you can't have somebody rush them all the time and try to put pressure on them because you give somebody four or five seconds to throw the football, uh, they're going to their completion percentage should be pretty high. But if you don't have the time, 
then all of a sudden, you know what? Uh, you can become a very average quarterback very quickly. And so, yeah, everything goes hand in hand. You've mentioned it a couple of times, and I, I would like to, you know, I, I want to be careful with your time here, but I, I would like to just spend a couple of minutes talking about the one job that you had with the CFL that fascinates me, and that was the director of officiating. And under your watch, Tom, I believe you were the one that established the um, the con- command center, correct? That's correct. Um, yes. But I think one thing that I'd like to share with the listeners of, of this podcast, and, and we did at the time, and I, I can't say it enough, was you did a tour around the league and invited the media in to come talk to you about it. And it was kind of the first time I had seen that. Now, leagues would send out missives about, hey, these are the changes. But I don't remember a league sending out the director to say, okay, you got an hour, let's sit down and we want to show you some stuff. How did that? How did you enjoy that job, and how did that job change the way you view football? Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. it. It's 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 very very unconventional the way it was done, because the person who becomes director of officiating has always been an official in in almost all sports. Very rarely is there ever a coach that is brought into the officiating world. And so I, I had that opportunity and I, I was humbled by it. Um, and I went in like I would go in anywhere, uh, knowing to keep my eyes and ears open, uh, listen as much as I possibly could. Uh, what I was able to bring to the legal office, to the whole group of officiating uh, officials was Teach me officiating, and I'll teach you football. So it became a, a, a match made in heaven because they, they knew that, okay, I knew I had a lot to learn. And they knew that. But they knew that they could learn a lot. And so we, we blended the two of them. And so everything that was done was done with that in mind, that uh, we, can, we can make this better. Um, something that I would always tell the athletes, and uh, if you were to ask Randy this, uh, either you get better or you get worse. Yep. Yeah, he'll finish it. Nothing ever remains the same. Right. So work to get better. And so um, that was the whole premise behind it. And, and, and in doing so, I knew that if we could share what – the, the coaches now are sharing to the players, but if I could share that with the media, then the media could get on board and have a better understanding of what the world of officiating is about. And so really the, the world of officiating comes down to this. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of an example. And I think almost everybody gets the idea. If uh, the speed limit is 60 kilometers an hour, and you are going 61 kilometers an hour. Are you speeding? <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. Are you going to get a ticket? The answer is no. You're not going to get a ticket. The, the police officer would not be. You know what? The, the judge, you take him to court. The judge is going to say, All right, what were you thinking? 61? No. Okay. Where do you get a ticket? 69? Now you're hovering close, but you know what? You're thinking, nah, we're not going to get a ticket. If you go 70, 71, now you're putting yourself in jeopardy of getting a ticket. That's officiating. 
It's- holding is holding. Yep. And that's part of the problem. And this is what I had to help teach the coaches because you don't want us to officiate to the letter of the law. You can't because we wouldn't have sport. It, it, we would take away the, 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 the flow of, of doing anything. Where the disconnect would come in is this. If they know they're getting a ticket at 70 and 71, that's that's easy because the people in the stands can make those calls. Right. It's where we get into this the gray area, and that's where we have to have the video to come on in and no two plays are ever the same to try to make sure that the coaches and the uh, players understand where the line is. And because the line does move, it's 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 fluid, it fluctuates. So that had that was one of the biggest things that um, I could help the coaches having an understanding of the officiating world, and so it became a, a little bit easier to navigate because it's a tough job. Because after the games are over in the weekend, eight teams are calling me complaining about <laughs> one or two plays. <laughs> And, and 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 I would say, you know, please don't call me about the obvious ones. I know those already. And, you know, and as long as the official knows that he made a mistake, we're okay. And so uh, it, that's the six years was, was delightful because I truly enjoyed it because I truly enjoy being engaged with the media. I enjoyed being engaged with TSN. I, would, I had them on uh, speed dial. Either I was at the game or I was on the phone that if they had a question, I would call them up and I'd give them an answer. And one of the reasons that uh, I I was supposedly fired after six years is uh, some of the owners um, are the ones who tell the commissioner, you know, what's going to happen and how they want changes. Um, One of the owners didn't like that I was I would always tell the truth. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, I think that's a badge of honor. I, I think, you know, telling the truth is a good thing. When we make a mistake, we own up to it. And and also the officials were okay with it because they knew that I'm going to defend them when they're correct. But if we made a mistake, we made a mistake. You know what? <laughs> Life goes on. I, no one's going to ever be perfect. And, you know, when, when an official makes one mistake, uh, you know, he's held to a different standard than any anybody else. And so that that was part of it. And um, the first time that I had training camp with the officials, we we have training camp over like a three or four day period of time. Uh, And so this is our opportunity to 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 see their fitness level, to actually give them some exams on the playbook and all the other things that need to to go on. They need to have some footage. What's the new little trends that we're thinking are going to be the differences or nuances of the. um, But I had the opportunity. They used to have these little red boxes that the referee had to go on in to take a look at that was on the field to make the decision. When I saw the inside of that box looking at that television Mm -hmm. it was not high definition it looked like it was the 60s you know that had the rabbit ears and that you had to move the rabbit ears to try to get the picture to come in clear um i I knew that you know what that's not that's not acceptable um and so at this time the nfl had a command center and the command center was actually for security reasons but then all of a sudden, the security reasons became uh, something that could be an aid to the um, officiating department. 
So Mike Pereira was the head of officiating at that time. I went down and sat with him and watched the Thursday night football game. And the reason that I did that is because their command center had, uh, I think it was something like 12 different command stations set up. We only needed one because we only have one game going on at a time. So on, on the Sunday, they have 11 o'clock games and one o'clock games. And so what happens was it was for security reasons, but all of a sudden it then became that they could do plays and review plays. And so um, I wanted to be there, not in the chaos, but in the, the confines of a single game. And so that's how we actually uh, made our command center very similar to that of the NFL. And uh, Jake Ireland was the first man to be sitting in front making decisions. I was there for a couple of weeks, so I just wanted to make sure that it was running properly. And the first time we had a coach's challenge, uh, Jake's looking at the play, playing it back and forth, and then he turned around and looked at me and he said, Tom, what do you think? And (laughs) I told him, Jake, it's not what I think, it's what you think. Whatever you think, make the decision and go. But I also was very cognizant that it had to have a time limit to it because if you had to look at it so many times and you couldn't make the decision, the the ruling on the field needs to stand. And sometimes that's one of the things that bothers me is that it's taking too long. The flow of the game gets uh, impeded when you don't make the decisions and make them in a timely fashion. But that was that's pretty much my my lowdown of the uh, my experience with the officiating department. Do you you can't put the the genie back in the bottle, but do, you, do we're missing something, aren't we, Tom? A little bit in in pro sports because I would contend that we would probably watch more action in a football broadcast in in slow motion than we do in real time. That, you know, everything is now up for grabs. Everything is now scrutinized. Every, we, don't, we can no longer live with imperfection, and I'm not sure that's, that's best for the long-term health of anything. Correct. And uh, slow motion distorts reality mm. because the moment that you have to put something in slow motion, that is not reality. And, and that's part of my pet peeve that, you know what, there's certain things that we want to make decisions on that are, yes, slow motion is, um, was the knee down when the ball came out and fumbled? You can put that in slow motion. But the other ones, um, no. You know what, um, let, let's let the officials officiate. And the one of the biggest challenges that I had when I was director is, uh, if I knew that they were officiating to replay is the moment that they should no longer be on the field. Because if I'm making a decision, say if I make my decision this way, it goes to replay, um, you can't officiate anymore. You have to make it like your life depends on it. And you know what? The, the guys have done a fantastic job. The officials are professional. Uh they sacrifice quite a bit for the money that they get. They cannot make a living out of it where in the NFL they can make a living sure. um, being an official. And so for that, uh, I'm grateful because that, that is one humbled group that uh, knows that they're doing a, a service and a, a very tough job as well and a unthankful um very unappreciated 
job. One of the questions I did ask when I first got there, because it was just a curiosity question, has anybody ever been thanked for their doing officiating? <laughs> and it was sad that, you know, it, there was very few, if one or two hands went up. And I let the coaches know that. I said, you know what? It would really be nice if you would just say thank you once in a while. And so it's got to be on a much better scale. And I think that, you know what, because it, it all works together. And you can't think that that's uh, the enemy. They're not the enemy. They're just uh, the third team that's out on the field uh, doing their job to the best of their abilities. Two last ones for you, and they're uh, looking ahead. When normality comes back and and we function again as we should, um, you'll still have the academy and you'll still have the Coach of the Year conferences? Yeah, you know what? Uh, yes, and I also had a, a, another job that I did last year. Is I was the uh, consultant uh, to the CFL on all of the command centers coaches challenges. Really? And I, I evaluated every one of them. Oh. Uh, yes. What was really nice is that again uh, on Wednesday I turned my report in and. I didn't have to worry about any feedback, talk to anybody, because um, there's times where I disagreed with the call on the field, mm -hmm. and there's times when I disagreed with the command center not overturning or overturning a call. And they just wanted somebody who could do it um, so that the commissioner could tell the clubs that we have an outside consultant that's actually grading these plays for us. And so that is, you know, that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I'm asked to do that again, um, albeit could be a half season, three-quarter season. Don't know yet. Yep. Only time will tell, uh, you know, what the CFL season looks like. Uh, U-sports season uh, is eight games and then come playoff time. So, you know, the middle of August that we get to start up hopefully without any uh disruptions but the canadian football academy is something that's near and dear to me we uh spend a great deal of time on social media for twitter facebook and instagram uh just that we have uh when we find something that really uh interests me i make sure my wife does a, a great job of doing that she uh, still been involved in football for almost as long as i have um she, she knows as much as quite a few people in the football <laughs> world. Um, but the Canadian Football Academy. So if you're on any of those, you can look because we, we, we try to look for things that are inspirational, things yeah. that coaches say, but also what, you know, parents can actually benefit from because uh, we, we, we do that ourselves. And, uh, you know, that's one way for the CFA to stay connected. But um we had a combine that we knew we had to cancel. We're very fortunate. We actually ran two CF, uh, CFA, but it was Nike Coach of the Year football clinics. Right. We ran one in Montreal, and we ran one in the first week of uh, February. Uh, I'm sorry. It's the uh, first week of March. Yep. And that's before everything hit the fan. And so we were really concerned. We had that here in Calgary at the Deerfoot Inn and Casino. It went over extremely well. But we were concerned afterwards as all the hands we were shaking. And uh, because at this time, uh, just a couple of weeks, uh, just a week later, everything got shut down. And we started to self-isolate. And 
but the CFA is still up and operating. We're, we're looking forward to it. Um, but you know that I'm always around, and is, Rob is always a delight to, to talk with you and spend time with you. This has been a real treat for me. Well, you're not quite done yet because we end this conversation, we end all of these podcasts with a very open-ended question, and I'm going to ask you, and I'm not going to put any parameters, it's it's Tom Higgins' answer to a question, and again, back to when things you know kind of calm down and normalize again, we want people to have some things to look forward to. So... Give me Tom Higgins' Hidden Calgary Gem. Hidden Calgary Gem. Everything that um, we, 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 we would love to have the stampede, that, that's, that is a gem. But you know what? The other gems are uh, sport in general, any of them. Whether it's the Calgary Stampeders, whether the University of uh, Calgary Dinos play great football, um, and then just getting back to normal, but my gems are sports. And so to be able to get back and you know what, we are a very friendly community. I look forward to handshakes and hugs. Uh, I don't want any more elbow taps or <laughs> feet clanking. Uh, but what I'm looking for is the gem for me is sport. Sir, I uh, had the, the honor and the pleasure of being around professional sport for over 20 years. I n- I've never met anybody like you. I have lots of friends, but I've never met anybody like you. You were an inspiration. You were a mentor. You were always very kind to me at times where maybe I didn't deserve to be uh, or didn't have you to be, but you were always very gracious. And the fact that you checked in on me last week just made me feel so special. Um, I can't thank you enough. You talked about why you do it off the top, but Tom... Uh, really, thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for taking some time to talk to me today. Well, you are special as well as all of the listeners, so please be kind to yourselves and, uh, you know what, look out for one another. Um, we, we, we are a special group of people, and we deserve to be loved, and uh, we are going to get back to normal, and when we do, uh, hug all the people that you can. That is Tom Higgins, um, a... <laughs> Yes, I too would like to get to a point where we can all shake hands and hug everybody. Um, I want to thank Tom uh, again. I just think there's so many special people in Calgary. Um, here's a guy that, in, in his own admission, talks about, you know, I've been fired, I've been let go, but I get back and I bounce back, and he takes a great deal of pride in it. Um, if you're a coach or you know a coach, there's some real good stuff in there. Uh, particularly about cutting guys. I, I thought that stuff was really powerful. Um, and the officiating. I, I thought the, the, the conversation about creating a, you know, a war room essentially for, a, for the CFL or a, an operations center, I thought that was an interesting story too. Thanks to Tom. Uh, thanks to a lot of our recent guests, Cassie Campbell, Pascal. Uh, was fantastic. Mentioned Randy Chevrier, Scott Russell from CBC Sports, um, uh, Al Coates. Uh, go all the way back to our original uh, guest, uh, Katrina Lemay Doan. Erica Weeb's been on the program. Uh, Sandra Persina, just to name a few. It's a, a wide swath of people. But I talked about it in the opening. Honest to God, I've come to the conclusion that this is a very selfish podcast for me to do because I just want to talk to people I like. I just want to tell stories that I think are fun. Um, get into a few opinions that are important to me, but basically I hope you're digging it. Um, I really, I guess it's a vanity project. Is that what we call it? A vanity project? I guess it's a vanity project. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it. If you are, please share it. 
please share it. Um, let other people know. Big shout out to uh, my friends David Benson and Becca Gould from Sport Calgary, who uh, are a big help in this, and of course uh, the leadership and uh, the direction of Katrina Lemay Doan from Sport Calgary. So uh, check out sportcalgary.ca. Find out what we're all about. Thanks for joining us. Please come back. Uh, and again, I want to said this earlier a couple weeks ago. I want to say hi to my friend Noah, who listens to every single podcast. Hello, Noah. Uh, this has been the original Six Feet Conversation podcast. Workout, we got to see it.